You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. The money was just burning a hole in Bill Belichick's pocket. He had to spend it, and as fast as possible. Opinionated. Of all the stopgap quarterbacks, Cam Newton was the best choice for the Patriots. Kudos to them getting it right. To the point. Socks will be better. They're still finishing in fourth. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in on a Friday. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here. On WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. No Red Sox baseball tonight after us. Sox opened up the series in Baltimore yesterday with a 7-3 win. Good to see Eduardo Rodriguez back on the mound. We'll get into that. Sox have now won four straight. We'll talk about some of Tom Brady's comments to Good Morning America yesterday. And coming up in about 15 minutes as part of our Friday Diamond discussion, we'll talk with Joan Neeson. She's put together a really interesting podcast docu-series on the 1998 home run trace and the steroid era in baseball. And we've got some major developments within the Harwood Boys hockey community regarding Coach Sean Thompson's appearance yesterday in virtual court. You can always get in on the Napa text line, the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, your locally owned Napa stores, at 802-585-3026. So much to get to. Let's not waste any time. Five, four, three, two, one. And... Here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center, with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Swanton, Middlesex, and St. Albans, and online at sticksandstuff.com. The Patriots have a real problem with Julian Edelman's knee, and now they're coming down to decision time on how they handle Julian Edelman. One of their seminal figures of the last decade the pats are getting down to critical decision time on him let's start with this there's two angles to it there's the patriots angle and there's the edelman angle story came out yesterday in the boston herald that julian edelman's knee is in bad shape it's doubtful he will be able to play the entire 2021 season Remember, he played just six games last year, landed on injured reserve, didn't come back. It's still not getting better. He can play, but you have no idea how long he's going to last. There's the Patriots angle, and there's the Edelman angle. Let's start with the Patriots. This team needs to move forward. This team needs to build as if Julian Edelman will not be there in 2021. He is somebody that you 100% want to be there, but he is not someone that you can count on at this point. You have probably four givens at the wide receiver position as of today if you're the Patriots. Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar, Jacoby Myers, Nikhil Harry. That's as of today. Aguilar, Myers, Bourne, Harry. Gunnar Olszewski is in there too, but I kind of include him more of a special teams player. I don't really put him in that wide receiver group. So you have four givens. The Patriots absolutely need to address the wide receiver position in the draft. They probably need two to three wideouts 
in the draft, including one that's relatively high up. They need six to seven options at the position, not including Julian Edelman. Six to seven options at wide receiver that don't include Julian Edelman. And then we need to go through the offseason program and kind of see where we're at. If Edelman decides to retire, if he just comes up in August and says, hey, I'm, I can't do this. It's not worth it. Well, now you've covered your bases, and the loss of Edelman is not something you were unprepared for. You need to be able to cover your bases. If Edelman decides to pull the plug on his career, you were ready for it. You need six to seven viable options for you going into training camp that are not Edelman. And then if you get to August, you get to training camp and Edelman is a go, you've drafted players that are there that can make an impact, then maybe you can go then and ship out Nikhil Harry. If you don't trade Nikhil Harry before the draft, there will still be interest in August. Somebody will get injured. You're still going to need cheap talent. So if you've got five or six other guys, Edelman looks healthy, and you don't think you need Harry, you can trade him in August and go start working on next year's draft. 100%. I don't want to be in a position, if I'm the Patriots, where I have to cut Julian Edelman. He's done too much for the franchise. He's done too much for the team for me to want to cut him. But if we get through camp with six to seven guys that are younger, that are faster, that are talented, and that are more healthy, I'm going to have to cut Julian Edelman. As much as I don't want to, he'll be 35 years old. Bill Belichick has never handled this organization in a way that sentiment, you would believe that sentiment mattered. It didn't matter for Willie McGinnis. It didn't matter for Ty Law. It didn't matter for Lawyer Malloy. It didn't matter for Tom Brady. It's not going to matter for Julian Edelman. I don't want to cut him. But if he tries to stick it out and he just isn't good enough or isn't healthy enough, then I am going to have to potentially be in a position to cut him. I'm not ditching a young player just out of sentiment for Julian Edelman, as good as he has been. It's the Brady Farkas Show. Te- uh, the text line is open, 802-585-3026. See one in here from uh, Tavon in Williston who says, Brady, what do you think about the Patriots trading Harry before the draft? which would make a roster spot more available for Edelman. I wouldn't trade Harry as a way to free up a roster spot for Edelman. If you're going to trade Harry, it's completely independent of what Edelman's situation is as far as I'm concerned. Now, I would keep Harry because I think he's valuable. But if you are going to trade him before the draft, you're doing so because you're getting a more valuable pick, like a third-round pick. You're not doing it because you think Edelman is a certainty. If Nikhil Harry's traded before the draft. It will have had nothing to do with Julian Edelman. So that was the Patriots side of things. Text line still open. Good question, Tavon. That's the Patriots side of things. What about the Edelman angle? What should Edelman want here? Think about this. He's 35 years old. Does he want to put himself in a position to be cut? And let me say this. At this point in my career, if I'm Edelman, I only want two things. There's only two things that I want if I'm Julian Edelman. One, I want to play for the Patriots. I want to finish my career as a one-team as a one player, and that's something that comes with a lot of cachet. And I want to go to the Patriots Hall of Fame, and I want my number retired. 
I want to finish my career as a Patriot, or I want to play with Tom Brady again in Tampa. So I, if I'm Edelman, I only want two things. I want New England or I want Tom Brady. I don't want to be traded somewhere else. I don't want to be cut and then signed somewhere else. I want New England or I want Brady. And I don't think that the Buccaneers need Tom Brady. Or I'm sorry, I don't think the Buccaneers need Julian Edelman. They definitely need Tom Brady. The Buccaneers don't need Edelman. As much as maybe Brady loves him or Brady would want him, I don't think it's really an option. Are they going to trade something to New England for a damaged goods 35-year-old wide receiver? I don't think so. And even if the Patriots cut him and, the Tampa, and Tampa wanted to sign him, who's he supplanting? He's not supplanting Chris Godwin. He's not supplanting Mike Evans nor Scotty Miller. And if Antonio Brown's back in Tampa, he's well above Julian Edelman too. So that's kind of out for me. So it's all about New England if I'm Edelman. I'm going to go through the offseason. I'm going to see who the team drafts. I'm going to see who I now have to beat out and who I'm comparing myself to. And then I will go through things and I will see how I look. But I think Edelman has, at that point, two choices. One, retire early during camp. Julian Edelman, I've said I don't want to cut him. Julian Edelman also shouldn't want to screw the Patriots. I don't want to see them cut three guys at the beginning of August to keep Edelman and then have Edelman retire the first week of September. That's not what we want here. If Edelman's going to retire, he needs to do it early to help the Patriots out. But then, if he's not going to do that, then he's, you know, he's going to just have to go for it and understand that he may end up in a position to not make this team and get cut. Now, Bill Belichick needs to communicate that to him, and I know that's not really Belichick's MO. I know Belichick doesn't really think that he needs to communicate with players, but he needs to communicate properly with Edelman. Look, if you come through camp, you are like everybody else, and we may cut you at the end of this thing because we are going in a direction where we want to win and we need guys we know we can count on, and right now right now, we don't know that Edelman is that guy. And if Bill Belichick comes in on August 25th and says, hey, you're our seventh guy, you're done, Edelman knew that was a risk going in as long as it was communicated to him. If Edelman retires, I think he deserves a ceremony in Foxborough. But if he doesn't retire and he thinks he's healthy enough to go, then he's putting himself out there as the same situation as anyone else who comes into camp. That can be cut. As long as Belichick communicates properly with him, Edelman will, you know, he'll he'll know the situation. And if he knows the situation, then I won't feel as bad if he gets cut. If he says, look, I want to try it. I want to go for it. I don't want to be the, the guy to cut Julian Edelman because of what he's done, but if he's unable to be reliable or unable to be healthy or unable to simply be as good as the six or seven guys that I'm bringing in aside from him, then that's the way it's going to have to be. And at that point, I think Edelman will have to retire because if he couldn't make the Patriots, he's not going to go make Tampa, and I don't think he wants to go play for someone else. It just wouldn't make sense. Like, Unless Edelman went to the 49ers where he's from California, that would be the only other option. And maybe you play with Jimmy G. Like that, I guess that could be it. I say Tampa and the Patriots, maybe the 49ers. Edelman grew up a Niners fan. And, you know, play with Jimmy G, be close to home. A team that is ready-made to, to go out and win. Maybe that could be a third option. And I get one on the text line from uh, Marco, who is over in uh, 
Essex, who says, yeah, Brady, what do, I, I was just going to text that in. What would you think about the idea of playing for the 49ers? You know, the 49ers, they seem like they're going to be a force, right? I mean, they're going to be healthier. Last year they were incredibly injured. I mean, even when we saw them in Foxborough, and they, and they killed the Patriots, something like 33-7 to 7 or something. Like, they were a shell of themselves. And, you know, so we'll see what happens. But uh, the Niners, I think, could be an option. I think they're a team that is going to certainly be built to win. Okay. As always, you can subscribe to the Brady Farkas Show podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And, again, you can always check us out on YouTube as well. Coming up next, it's our Friday Diamond discussion, which is brought to you by Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. Joan Neeson is a longtime sports writer. She is now part of a podcast docu-series called Crushed, which chronicles the 1998 home run race and the steroid era in baseball. What did she learn? What does she take away? And does the steroid era still have a lasting impact on the game and how it's played today? Joan Neeson, the podcaster behind Crushed, the seven-part docuseries. That's next on our Friday Diamond Discussion. Thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Hi, this is Evan Hallstrom. I race super late models with the Pro All-Star Series. You can follow me throughout the summer racing up and down the East Coast. I've always loved auto racing. Not only do I drive the car, but I build it with my dad. We're a small family-run team that has a lot of fun. I'm proud of the work that I do with the Governor's Highway Safety Program and the Vermont Highway Safety Alliance. Remember, click it or ticket. Follow me on my Facebook page at Evan Hallstrom Racing and Twitter at EvanHMS1 or my website at EvanHallstromRacing.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVRadio.com. Welcome back in, everybody. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on this Friday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. You know, Religion of Sports is a media company that should be familiar to fans in our region because it's partly started by former Patriots quarterback Tom Brady. And we talked a lot about Religion of Sports a couple of years ago when Brady released the Tom versus Time documentary. Well, Religion of Sports has grown a lot since then, and they're really, really big now in the podcast game. And one of the podcasts that they have produced now is a seven-part series. It's called Crushed. It's about the 1998 home run race in baseball, about the steroid era in baseball and uh part two has just come out now and the brain behind it is joan neeson formerly of sports illustrated who's working on this project for religion of sports and she's with us now as part of our friday diamond discussion so joan thanks for being with us how are you thanks for having me i'm doing great well i appreciate you being with us look the the steroid era the 98 home run race it's been written about right it's been talked about we had a 30 for 30 on it last summer why did you want to tell a story that has been told and what are you doing differently? Yeah, so I have been working on this project since January of 2020. So it's wow. been a minute. So we did not even know about the 30 for 30 when we yeah. um, got the ball rolling. When I came on at Religion of Sports in three, January of 2020, um, one of the guys who was sort of spearheaded starting this audio department, Adam Schlossman, had a kernel of an idea about a podcast about the steroid era and sort of tied to the congressional hearings in 2005 that sort of were a turning point for baseball, I think, in terms of, you know, its popularity and also it sort of fixing its steroid problem. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took that idea and ran with it. And 
So 30 for 30 comes along a few months later and my producer and I were both like, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> are they going to just tell our story here that we're telling? And I think what we're doing is very different. That was, um, that production focused a lot on the home run race and had great highlights and really captured the excitement of that summer. But um, really kind of steroids were an afterthought there and steroids are not an afterthought for us. Um, they are front and center. And I think we're trying to just take a slightly different look at steroids, a slightly less moralizing, a slightly less sort of witch hunt type look. Mm. Not to say that we're like going on this podcast saying everyone go take steroids, they're great. But I think um, just trying to look at them through a more nuanced lens than most people have in sports media. You know, when we think about steroid era, we think about McGuire, we think about Sosa, we think about Bonds. But what your podcast has done and your docu-series has done is talk with a lot of, I hesitate to say lesser players because they're all in the major leagues, but guys that maybe had real moral decisions to make of, hey, people around me are doing this. Should I do this to keep my career even going or should I play it straight, but it may end my career? I think that's an interesting angle that I, I, I think your podcast series is going to tackle. Yeah. So next week's episode that comes out on, gosh, what would the date be? I think the 22nd of April will really sort of go in that direction. And that's sort of where the series goes. One thing I realized early on was that these guys, these prominent players, that's only a tiny, tiny portion of the story on steroids. Yeah. And also they don't like talking about it. So mm -hmm. I knew the odds of like Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire sitting down with me for this project were pretty slim, no matter sort of what argument I made. But beyond that, it's like, that's a percent of a percent of a percent of the guys who had to make this decision about whether to use steroids. And yeah, we talked to guys who are maybe not household names, who's, who aren't, you know, whose jerseys aren't selling out guys like that, who had some really tough decisions to make. And um, I think it's a little easier to feel a level of empathy for guys like that, who it's a matter of your paycheck and feeding your family in some cases um, to take these drugs or not. What sense did you get of how much steroids helped athletes in competition because we're all trying to quantify what the effect is is it hey a guy could hit it 200 feet now he could hit it 700 feet or it takes it from 330 to 345 like what's the, what was the impact so there's no real consensus on that because we can't study steroids medically because right. they're illegal and um it's really impossible to study mm -hmm. them it would be great to like actually have guys say i took steroids before and after and mm -hmm try to make a control group for that. We can't. However, through all the reporting I did, and I talked to doctors, I talked to ethicists, I talked to players, obviously. Um, I really think that it is more a matter of, you know, a ball just eking its way over the fence versus being in the upper deck. Um, not to say that Mark McGuire or Barry Bonds would have set a home run record without steroids. I, I don't think that's the case. I think steroids got them there. But I, I do think you have to have certain skills. You have to have that vision. You have to have the swing, all of the intangibles that you develop as a kid, as a teenager, as a minor leaguer, before you're taking steroids, probably. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, you look at these guys, they're huge. The balls are just, they're launched to high heaven. And I, I don't think that happens in a lot of cases without a little extra help. Joan Neeson from Religion of Sports with us here. She's part of the Crushed podcast team. Part two is out. Part three comes out next Thursday. She's here with us on the Brady Farkas show, taking a look at the uh, 98 home run race in the steroid era that uh, kind of encompassed that period of time. How did steroids grow or become more evolved? Because when I think about 90s steroids and baseball players, I think guys who just got stronger. When I think about 2000 steroids, I think about more sophisticated Andy Pettit saying it helped me in recovery. So how did steroids or cheating grow as we move forward, you know, from 98 to 2008? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge misconception that this was just home run hitters who were taking these drugs. And I think, yeah, I think these drugs came into baseball because of sort of like that 80s macho culture. I mean, that was yep. sort of this weightlifting <laughs> craze. And obviously the guys who want to get big are the guys who are probably going to take them first. But I think very quickly, a lot of players who, a lot of pitchers, um, a lot of guys, like scrappy infielders who wanted to improve their bat speed or their fast yeah. twitch muscles. I've heard so many stories about guys who were not taking these to hit home runs. And like you said, the technology improves. Um, you know, anabolic steroids have been around for, you know, not that long, really, in terms of in sports. They, they appeared in the 20th century in sports. And um, they're getting better, you know. And the science is always one step ahead of the testing and the competition and everything. But, yeah, it, it's very interesting how we have this idea of what these drugs do. And they really can do a lot of different things um, and make people better at sports in a lot of different ways. You talk about next week's episode coming out, talking about players who had decisions to make. Did steroids in any way divide clubhouses? Because the guy next to me is cheating and the guy next to me is getting a contract that I want and getting playing time that I want and I'm not. Was there a division there within clubhouses? Yeah, I think there was. And it's interesting because you talk to some guys who maybe chose not to take and know their teammates did who say, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone anything. And I think that's sort of part of that code of like, we were all in this together. And yeah. there's not a lot of like retrospective finger pointing I that I found in this. Um, that said, I think at the time it was very frustrating. And I think that really that division in clubhouses is what, le is what led to steroid testing. It's what led to MLB cracking down because basically there had to be enough voices within the players union who were incentivized to want to implement testing in order for the league to start testing. And that was a huge tipping point. Is what we saw from the steroid era in terms of the way the game was played and the excitement, does that in any way leak over to how baseball is played today? I mean, um, more emphasis on the home run, more emphasis on throwing harder. Is any of what the game is being played today built out of what we saw from the mid-90s? That's a great question. And, you know, I think I think the throwing harder is probably more of a callback to some of those steroid era trends than the home run is. I feel like yeah, we've seen some big home run seasons the last couple of years, but it sounds like the ball was potentially mm. juiced a bit. And um, from what I know, just, you know, covering baseball here and there over my career, I've never been a devoted baseball writer before before this, but guys aren't, that's not the objective here. The objective, it's it's so sort of numbers-based now and it's so scientific. And um, I don't think that's really like the philosophy most hitting coaches are preaching. Mm. Um, I remember, I don't, this is a paraphrasing of the quote, I grew up in St. Louis, was a Cardinals fan as a kid and the former Cardinals manager Mike Matheny really hated when his players hit home runs I remember him giving a quote to the paper in St. Louis about how they kind of slow down rallies and I don't think yeah. that's like a common thing but in general that's not what hitting coaches are preaching I do think pitching I mean it is what do you want to do you want to throw over 100 you know yeah. we look at Shohei Otani the other night mm -hmm. and he's throwing 101 and that's what we want to <laughs> see um, so yeah, that's, I think more of a line that really hasn't changed a ton since the steroid era. I think guys are doing it naturally now because of other advances. So you get to religion of sports, come up with this project January of 2020. Uh, so we're working on now 14 months or so. How many interviews, how many people did you have to track down? And did you get a lot of no's along the way? A whole lot of no's, huh. um, mostly from players because yeah. players still don't want to talk about this. So, I mean, honestly, with players, I can't even count how many emails and phone calls I, you know, made and sent. And, you know, probably like one in 10 guys said yes to me player-wise, maybe less than that. Um, people around the game, um, 
a little more willing to talk. Um, came across a lot of people who were like, I haven't thought about this in a while and I have some new thoughts on this that I I, hmm. I didn't have 15 years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, I talked to, I mean, I don't, in terms of formal interviews, like dozens and then even more than that, just calls talking about it with people. It was, it was a lot. You know, I have a question that I hope I ask in the way I want it to. If ESPN does a project, if Fox does a project, a really long established media company, maybe people look at it differently. Like, hey, I've watched ESPN for years. I kind of know what it is. Religion of Sports is a new media company. So how do you sell a project to a subject or, hey, I want to get you on for Religion of Sports, but I have never heard of Religion of Sports yet. Like, how do you sell the project when you're coming at it from a company that isn't as well known? That's a great question, because this is the first time in my career that I haven't worked for some kind of largely legacy publication, whether it's a newspaper or Sports Illustrated, where I was yeah. for six years. And that name carries a lot. Um, it wasn't hard to convince someone to let me come write about them, usually, at Sports Illustrated. And this was different. And I, I think for me, I tried to you know, share a little bit about the company's mission and also my body of work over the course mm -hmm. of my career. Um, and I think that helped. I certainly think yeah. that like people can look at your Twitter, they can kind of get a sense of who you are and what your sensibilities are. And I think that helped. I also think that there probably were people who would have maybe talked to me if I were still at Sports Illustrated or at ESPN or had that name to back it up. And that's just the reality of this business. It's a seven part series. I'll leave you with this. I always like to ask this question. What's the thing that got put on the cutting room floor? What's the thing that got left on the deck that we're not going to hear? Okay. I'm pretty confident this is definitely left on the deck because we, okay. we have a little bit left to do work-wise. <laughs> um, we talked to some guys who were really involved in making the ad, Chicks Dig the Long Ball, that okay. came out in the late 90s yeah. where McGuire is hitting home runs and Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin are like wanting to do that and going <laughs> to the calisthenics to like become home run hitters. And um, we talked to the guys who were behind that ad mm. as sort of a commentary on that time. And in the end, I think we had to move forward a little more quickly and that got left behind. But the story of that ad and these guys sort of Tom, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, like training to be in this commercial um, was, were pretty funny. Joan Neeson, she's the the brains behind the podcast docu-series Crushed. It's out now. Two parts of it are out. Part three comes out next week. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find it. Joan, we appreciate the time, the perspective. And, uh, you know, the pandemic, I think, probably gave you a lot of time to do this project to the, you know, to the level that it needed to be done. So I'm looking forward to hearing it over a seven-part series rather than condensed into a half hour. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to everyone getting to listen. Looking forward to it as well. Looking forward to uh, to uh, listen to it myself. So there she goes, Joe Neeson of the Crushed docu series on the uh, from the Religion of Sports podcast network. So very very cool. Yeah, Tom Brady, Michael Strahan, Gotham Chopra all started the uh, Religion of Sports network a couple of years ago. TB12 did it with the uh, Tom versus Time documentaries. Doing another project with them. That's coming up soon. Joan was with us today on the Friday Diamond Discussion. Thanks to Red Door Jewelers in downtown Randolph, where every visit is a home run. What we will do is we will step aside. We'll get a national news update from the good people over at CBS, and we'll come back. Harwood hockey coach Sean Thompson in virtual court yesterday. Here's what we learned, and I already know what my decision is about his coaching future at Harwood. We'll talk about all of that. As we continue on to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and always streaming on the free WDEV radio app. Go get it. Apple Store, Google Play Store, it's free. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com.
Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here. Final hour of the week on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Reminder, if you miss any of the show or any of our exclusive interviews, you can always subscribe to the Brady Farkas show podcast page on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it's all thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. I want to thank Joan Neeson for joining us in the last hour. We'll get to some of our takeaways from her in about 15 minutes. But I want to go here to a story we covered a lot about two weeks ago. Harwood boys hockey coach Sean Thompson was in court yesterday, albeit virtually, over the suspicion of DUI arrest he had on March 21st. Here's the basics, right? Remember the case. He was arrested three days before the Harwood boys D2 state title game. The school let him coach in that despite having an alleged almost .16 blood alcohol level. And it was his second arrest in his life for DUI. So that's kind of the reset of the story. And after reading the reports today that I read in both the Waterbury Roundabout and the Montpelier Times-Argus, I'm out. I'm out on Sean Thompson as a boys high school hockey coach at Harwood. I'm out on him as a coach, you know, ever again. Well, ever again, let's see. You know what? Yeah, probably ever again. I'm out on Sean Thompson as a coach again, certainly at Harwood, certainly in this community. I can wait for the legal process to play out fully before I officially make a statement that he's not coaching for any for me anymore, but he's not welcome if I have an end-of-the-year banquet. He's not welcome at graduation to say goodbye to his players. He's not coming on school grounds, and I'm not discussing next year with him either, and I'm not organizing captain's workouts with him this offseason. Sean Thompson's not coaching for me anymore. After what I read in the Waterbury Roundabout and the Montpelier Times-Argus, which had detailed, you know, detailed, um, had a, a high level of details about this case and about the court hearing, and Sean Thompson pleaded not guilty to these to this, but he's out for me. I'm done. I can let the legal process play out before I formally announce it, but he's not coming back. And I continue to be amazed. Text lines open, 802-585-3026. I continue to be amazed at the amount of support that Sean Thompson is getting and the amount of slander that the local media is getting over this. There are 25 comments on the Waterbury Roundabout story on Facebook. 25 comments. I believe 22 of them are in support of Sean Thompson and against the newspaper. And most of them fall in the, isn't there something to better, isn't there something better to write about category? Here's a, here's a rich comment. Here's a comment to the Waterbury Roundabout about their story. This one comes from Rich. I'm not defending anyone, but find something better to write about and stop stepping all over a young person who made a bad choice. Write about some good for once instead of this blank. Is there nothing better you can write about? First off, angry Rich. Sean Thompson is 31 years old. Sean Thompson is a full-fledged adult. Is he young in the grand scheme of life? Yeah, I'm 31. Also, Sean Thompson and I are the same age. We're we're young in the grand scheme of life. We're full-fledged adults. Sean Thompson has a child. Sean Thompson is old enough and mature enough to know right from wrong. Here, he made the mistake. And he made a wrong choice. And as for that bad choice that you call it, this was his second offense for DUI in his life. It was his second offense for DUI inside a 10-year period. Okay, If you're not learning the lesson on your own, I am now taking things from you. 
and I am now not welcoming you back to things. If you're not going to learn it on your own, I'm going to take things that you love from you, and I have a feeling he loves this coaching job, and he values it, and he's losing it as far as I'm concerned. We can wait till the legal process plays out for it to get announced, but he is not on my coaching staff next year. Not after this. Not after what I read. And, you know, um, here's a little more about the bad choice, as you call it. When Rich writes in, stop stepping all over a young person who made a bad choice. Let me tell you about the bad choice that Sean Thompson made. This, was, this is what's in the Waterbury Roundabout. Sean Thompson, who's 31 years old, was allegedly going to pick up his child at the mother's house. He was going to pick up his child at the mother's house. The mother said, you smell like alcohol. The mother did not allow the child to ride with her father because he smelled like alcohol. She then said, if you leave, and I believe you're under the influence, I am calling the police. He left, and she did. So this is a man in Sean Thompson who was willing to jeopardize the safety of his own child and drive his own child well under the influence of alcohol. And instead of then of listening to the child's mother and even against her warnings, he elected to leave anyways. So he puts his own child's life in danger and you want to defend him and say it's okay for him to run the life, lives of 20 other kids at Harwood Hockey? Who are these people? Who are these people that are defending Sean Thompson? Who are these people that are going against the newspaper for reporting the news? The newspaper writes the news, and the newspaper is the bad guy. Sean Thompson allegedly was going to drive his own kid under the influence of alcohol, and you think it's okay for him to coach hockey for 20 other kids in the community. I, I, I don't know where these people are coming from that are agreeing with this. Shame on anyone who is defending this. And by the way, the story also said that Sean Thompson blew a .157. So I had a .157 blood alcohol level at the scene. And then three hours later, blew also a 1.57. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's not possible, right? He's not going to have blown the same thing at 4.30 in the afternoon and the same thing at 7 o'clock. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? You would naturally get a little more sober at 7 o'clock if you've had nothing to drink. Well, a forensic chemist from Waterbury, ran the test and said, you know what? Yeah, Brady, you're probably right. And she calculated that while he was driving, his blood alcohol level was probably a 0.19. That is two and a half almost times the legal limit. Who, who can defend this? So he probably was a 0.19 while driving and then was a 0.157 three hours later and people are defending this is this because hockey is so important to the Harwood community somebody please on the text line text in because all I see is angry vitriol towards the media and all I see is um, positive affirmation of Sean Thompson but nothing on the text line 802-585-3026 Napa Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line you're out there the defenders of Sean Thompson are out there the anti-media people are out there. I read it all day. But nobody here is on the text line to, can tell me why. The text line's open. I would love to know 
who was defending this. And I'm not out here to, to slander a community member. I'm really not. I'm here to tell the truth. And, and part of telling the truth is, is Sean Thompson screwed up. And he screwed up for the second time, allegedly. And if this is true, and the more details that come out, the more damning it is, if these details are true, he's not coaching for me at Harwood. I'm not saying he needs to go to prison for the rest of his life. But I'm saying that you people that want him to coach high school hockey seriously need to reevaluate your thoughts on this. Because if he's going to drive his own daughter allegedly under the influence at a .19, I am not having him around 20 other kids at the Harwood community. Another message the Waterbury Roundabout got came from somebody named Jake. I feel this kind of reporting is very unnecessary and distasteful especially by a very small newspaper for a very small community. This article only exists because of the drama surrounding the hockey team recently. This man is a private citizen. Leave him be. First off, Jake, Sean Thompson is a private citizen, but he has a public job. He is a boys hockey coach, and you're right. That is why the story is being covered. That is why I'm talking about it. Because of what his job is. And when you have a job like that, the stories get out. If he was Sean Thompson, the supermarket manager, or Sean Thompson, uh, you know, the mechanic, or Sean Thompson, the lawn care specialist, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about it like this. The occupation wouldn't matter. Those are not public-facing things. When you have a job like that, the community talks. And people talk behind your back and it spreads like gossip through the community. When it's a public-facing job, the media gets involved. And that's just the breaks. And if you don't like that level of out-there-ness, then don't take the job. Because he's Sean Thompson, the coach. The coach of the, of the town's public high school. You lose that private citizen protection when you have a public-facing job. Okay, Deshaun Watson is an NFL quarterback. His story is amplified because of who he is and what his job is. The same way the story was amplified for Michael Vick, the same way the story was amplified for Baker Mayfield when we wondered if his draft stock would slip because of his running with the cops in college, who you are and what you do matters. And Sean Thompson has a public job, and that means you deal with public criticism and public scrutiny that others don't. And your story, when you screw up, when you have a public job, when you screw up, your name gets dragged through the mud. And it gets put out there. If I got arrested for DUI, I'd expect the exact same. Now, in the grand scheme of things, Brady Farkas is a nobody. But Brady Farkas has a public job. And I represent myself and my employer. And when you negatively impact your public-facing employer, I deserve to be called out in the same way that Sean Thompson does. So when the person says the article only exists because of the drama surrounding the hockey team, yeah, that's true. He's a hockey coach. It's a public job. He's not a cashier. He is not a, uh, you know, he's not a mechanic. All wonderful occupations, they allow you a little bit more privacy. If you don't like that level of scrutiny or that level of, of watchdogness being on you, then don't take the public job. But when I hear 
that Sean Thompson, initially I said, a .16 almost BAC, double the limit, he shouldn't have been coaching in the title game. Harwood let him coach anyways. That was very wrong on the school administration standpoint. Then when I hear that it really was probably a .19, Andy was trying to drive his, you know, pick up his daughter and drive her, well, that also isn't real good, and he's not coaching for me. And there's some cynic out there who's wondering, well, okay, if he's picking up his daughter, he probably doesn't live with the mother. Is the mother trying to call the cops on him to slander, you know, to slander the ex, or or at least to someone that she's not living with at the time? I would doubt that. I don't know of too many women that want to send their father, their kid's father, to prison, and want them, you know, Sean Thompson faces four years in prison. I I would doubt the woman wanted that. But what she does want is to know that her child can be safe with her father, and that day she wasn't. And that's a problem. So these people who are defending Sean Thompson or slandering the paper on Facebook, I'd love to know where you are in the text line. Because right now, seriously, we talked about the story for 13 minutes. It might be the first time we haven't had one text in 13 minutes. I know it's Friday. I know the weather's nice. But I know, I know you people are out there listening because I see the numbers. And I know you people are following this story because I read it all day. Multiple outlets. Every one of them getting crushed. So either either, either everyone has flipped their opinion and now I'm the one outlet that's not going to get crushed. Or nobody wants to come forward anymore and say, you know what? Yeah, Sean, yeah no one wants, to, no one wants to, to stand by what they were writing four hours ago. And that's fine too. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The text line is open. All show long, 802-585-3026. Okay, I'm going to rein it back in, get back to our Joan Neeson interview. Joan Neeson from Religion of Sports joined us about a half an hour ago and talked about her new podcast docu-series called Crushed, in which it was about the 98 home run race and, more importantly, the steroid era in baseball. I thought it was really interesting when she said that one of the things her podcast is going to do is talk about the, quote, lesser players that had a real choice about whether to take steroids. We think Bonds, we think McGuire, we think Sosa. But what about the lesser players? What about the players who weren't that good or weren't that level? And what about their decision process? Joe Neeson's going to tackle that. And yeah, we talked to guys who are maybe not household names, who's, who aren't, you know, whose jerseys aren't selling out, guys like that who had some really tough decisions to make. And um, I think it's a little easier to feel a level of empathy for guys like that who it's a matter of your paycheck and feeding your family in some cases um, to take these drugs or not. It is truly amazing when you think of it. I have so many questions about the steroid era in baseball, starting with what percentage of players took steroids. Did all the managers know? Did all the front office people know? How did it impact careers? Whose whose career took off because of steroids? Who screwed it up? who, Who took steroids the wrong way and got injured? Who couldn't translate steroids into success and I also want to know how it impacted clubhouses because I absolutely think that the steroid era and the steroid decision and the steroid topic could impact clubhouses and Joe Neeson told us that yeah I think there was and it's interesting because you talk to some guys who maybe chose not to take and know their teammates did who say you know I don't I don't begrudge anyone anything and I think that's sort of part of that code of like we were all in this together and there's not a lot of like retrospective finger pointing i that i found in this um that said i think at the time it was very frustrating and i think that 
really that division in clubhouse is what led is what led to steroid testing. It's what led to MLB cracking down. I absolutely think the steroid issue would cause division one hundred percent. Because if I'm a backup infielder and the starting second baseman is on steroids and I'm not, well, that guy's got the money that I want. That guy's got the status that I want. He's got the endorsements that I want. He's got the fame that I want. And you have to wonder if you're being slighted by that. Look, I'm biding my time. I'm waiting here on the bench. And that guy's got what I want and he's not doing it legitimately. 100% I could see very, very easy um, resentment within clubhouses. Think about where you work, wherever it is. When Jones said, oh, I think a lot of people just put their head down and said, oh, I don't begrudge them. I Who are these people? Because I think it's very, very natural to look around your workplace and wonder, you know, why is that person treated a little differently? Or why is that person, you know, why is it, you know, I used to work with somebody who worked 30 hours a week, but they got paid for 40 hours a week. And I'm like, I'm working 60 hours a week getting paid for 40. This person's working 30 getting paid for 40. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And you get PO'd and you get resentful. I used to work in my first job at Albany. I was working 29 hours a week. Let's see. I could only get paid for 29 hours a week. I'd work 40. I could get paid for 29. Other people work 40. They get paid for 40. I was the part-timer out working the full-timers in my own mind. Like, I'm, people are always comparing their own situations to their coworkers. So for these people to just say, oh, I can put my head down and ignore it, I, I, I'm blessed be you because that's certainly not me. And I can ease, I'm can i looking forward to listening to Joe Neeson's podcast. Again, it's called Crushed Apple Podcast, Spotify. It's brought to you by Religion of Sports, which is the Tom Brady-backed uh, media company. Okay, I am fired up today, and I'm only going to get more fired up about this one. We do it every single day. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? I don't I don't like the signing. <laughs> I'm not happy about the signing. Okay. I think about 99.5 of New England is upset with this news today. All right. They really said that? Uh, that's the issue for me, is that he is limited physically in a vacuum. Cam Newton's shoulder is what it is. His body is what it is. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Okay, who's saying what leads us to Josh Allen, Buffalo Bills quarterback? He was on this 10-question series with Kyle Brandt of the NFL Network, and Kyle Brandt of the NFL Network asked Josh Allen, Bills quarterback, if he was going to get the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm still uh, still debating that, and you know, statistics, I'm a big statistics and logical guy, so if sure. statistics show that it's uh, the right thing for me to do, um, I'd do it, and again, it, I'd go lean the other way too if it that's what it said, and I, I haven't been paying attention to it as much maybe as I should have, but um, I've just been doing my thing and masking up when I'm going out and staying close and, and hanging around the family. Okay, Josh Allen is the first athlete I see in the crosshairs on this, and he won't be the last. So I want to make the statement now. Journalists or reporters or radio hosts or TV hosts should not, not, N-O-T, capital N-O-T, be asking individual players or coaches about their vaccination status. When I heard that Kyle Brandt, who I think is generally pretty good, and I love this show, Good Morning Football, that he's a part of, when I heard that he asked Josh Allen about his vaccination status, I uh, I found that to be very, very wrong. Now, if people want to ask about 
team-wide percentages of vaccination, I think that's 100% fine because, at least in baseball, I'll use baseball, in baseball, once your Tier 1 personnel hits an 85% vaccination rate, then the organization gets to relax protocols, and you'll notice a change in the way the organization is running. And it's going to be an evident change because players, coaches don't have to adhere to the same rules. So if you're talking about a team-wide benchmark, I think it's fair to ask, hey, have you hit that benchmark? No, we haven't. Okay, what percentage are you at? We're at 78%. Okay, do you think you can get to 85%? I'm not sure. We got a couple people in the organization still on the fence. I, I think that line of questioning is 100% fine. But individuals should not be asked about their COVID vaccination status. Look, every person has the right to get the vaccine or to not get the vaccine. And regardless of what we as individuals think, that is their right as individuals. We wouldn't ask Josh Allen about any other individual health decisions that weren't related to football. We wouldn't ask any athlete ever about the flu shots or what shots their kids get for school. We wouldn't ask them about anything like that. We should not start with the COVID vaccine. And this is a no-win situation for Josh Allen. All this would do, all this will do, all this has done is create division. And we don't need division. We don't need more division. That's what we have so much of in life, and it's translated into sports. We don't need it now with this also, because this will be the next hot-button thing. The first thing was was politics. Then it was social justice. Now it's going to turn into COVID vaccine and how you feel about coronavirus. We do not need more things to divide us as a nation, and we don't need more things to ruin sports or or ruin our enjoyment of sports, rather. Think about po- Just think about political impact. Think about politics. When people found out that Tom Brady had a Make America Great Again hat in his locker, he was crushed for it. He was crushed even more when people found out that he had previously been friends with, with, with Trump prior to Trump even being president. Politics now absolutely plays a part in how we view athletes. Charitable donations by owners now impact how we feel about them. them. Do we really need vaccination status to be the next thing to divide us all? Look, this is me personally speaking right now. At this moment, all I care about it is all I care about is this. If you're not going to get the vaccine, and I'm speaking, you know, about Josh Allen, if he's not going to get it, or you're just not eligible yet, just continue to take coronavirus seriously. Respect those who you're around. He says he wears a mask. He says he doesn't go anywhere. He says he's around his family. For now, for now, I'm going to judge him on his overall COVID response. If he was out throwing a party for a hundred, I, you know, I'd come out and crush him for that because it's just so bad optically. But he says he's not doing that. So, if he is going to live in shelter and wear a mask, then right now I don't need him to get the COVID vaccine at this particular moment. And everybody would like him to, I'm sure. But it's his right not to, or his right to delay it, or his right to not do it yet. We don't need to know, because all it's going to do is create division. If a team hits their threshold and they can relax privacy or COVID protocol, then that's all that should matter. And if they can't, then we'll know that there are at least enough people that didn't want it. And I don't need to know who those people are, because everything else causes division. I don't need this to also. 
I don't need this too also. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line 802-585-3026. Tom and East Montpelier. It's possible some folks just want the legal process to prove Sean Thompson guilty or innocent before holding him responsible. I understand that if it's an NFL player like Aaron Hernandez being charged with capital murder, you have to fire him first and ask questions later. With a DUI charge where everything is just alleged at this point, maybe it does make more sense to let due process take place before he gets fired, especially if he's a good coach and his parents and and his players are still supporting him. Tom, I appreciate the, even though you disagree with me, I appreciate the thoughtful message. And I'll start there. I didn't ask for Sean Thompson to be fired right away. Now, that's I don't expect you to remember that because it was two and a half weeks ago. But I said on March 21st, when this came out, or March 22nd, which was that Monday, that Sean Thompson should be suspended. And Sean Thompson should simply not coach the championship game. And they let him coach it anyways. I thought that was wrong. So I was not for firing him right away. I was not for firing him until more details came out. And I was willing to risk a one-game suspension. You know, I was willing to suspend him for one game and then understand there was a risk that it wasn't true. But I have a .16 blood alcohol level at the scene. I have a uh, second DUI offense. Those were all strikes against Sean Thompson at the time. He at least should have not coached that game. Now moving forward, I believe, I believe, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe high school coaches need to be like recertified and re-offered the job every year essentially. I just wouldn't bring Sean Thompson back. It's not even so much a firing. I just wouldn't rehire him. It's almost like it's a one-year contract, and the contract has to be renewed every year. I just wouldn't renew Sean Thompson's contract. But he's not coaching for me with this level of allegations. We're talking, again, a second alle- a second arrest. A second arrest, and the details here are pretty damning. And for me, I'm not renewing that one-year contract. And the people who are angry writing at the Waterbury Roundabout and other outlets are they don't seem to say let the legal process play out. They seem to say the newspaper is slandering a good man. Well, the newspaper is reporting the news. I guess I'm given an opinion, but the newspaper is simply reporting the news, and that is their job. And it is a story because of who Sean Thompson is and what his job is. So, you know, these people who think, hey, couldn't the couldn't the paper sweep this under the rug? Well, no, they can't. They could sweep it under the rug if it was the guy who owned the local pizza shop. They can't sweep this under the rug. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Speaking of slander, it sounds like Tom Brady is slandering the Patriots, but he's really not. That's next right here on WDEV. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast, brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center, with locations in Middlesex, St. Albans, Swanton, Enosburg, and Derby, and online always at sticksandstuff.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. The show brought to you in part by Evan Holstrom Racing. Evan Holstrom is an 18-year-old pro all-star series driver, super late models from Northfield, Vermont. He'll be in action this weekend at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway in Loudoun for the Northeast Classic. Again, that is, uh, oh, I'm sorry, not this weekend, next weekend. So that's next weekend, the 16th and 17th there in Loudoun, New Hampshire. But Evan Holstrom is 
is uh, 18 years old. He was the youngest ever to qualify for the Vermont Milk Bowl at Thunder Road. So a uh, pretty accomplished racer already, only getting better as he goes. And now in the Pro All-Star Series, the Super Late Model Division, finished 11th uh, last Friday in Hickory, North Carolina, 19th on Saturday. So looking for uh, more and more better results as we move forward through this racing season. Hard to believe Thunder Road back uh, May 2nd, so we're three weeks away from that. So a lot of people in central Vermont, all over Vermont, looking forward to seeing the uh, the ACT crew back at Thunder Road this year. So former Patriots quarterback Tom Brady went on Good Morning America. It sounds like he's slamming the Patriots yet again, but he's really not. Listen to Brady talk about leaving New England, going to Tampa. I would say in a lot of ways, really invigorating. You know, when you're at the Patriots, everyone would always come to me and introduce themselves to me because I was kind of the mainstay. But I was the new guy for the first time, you know, and that was a really different experience. When you're in one place for 20 years, you think that's the only way. And I think when you go to a different place, you realize, wow, there, you know, there's another way that people do things. It sounds like Brady is basically saying how great Tampa was and how much New England stinks. But that's not it, though. See, this is a bit chicken in the egg here. People hear those comments and they think, see, Brady wasn't happy in New England, so he went to a place where he'd be happy. I actually think it's in reverse. Tom Brady didn't want to break up with the Patriots. In fact, I think he fought against it. I think he probably, you know, internally cried about it. I think he wanted to stay forever and ever. But ultimately, he has now come to a point of clarity where he realizes that moving on isn't that bad. Moving on, in fact, can be pretty great. But I don't think he ever wanted to move on, and I think he never would have if he hadn't been forced to. Think about any relationship that you've been in. You're driving in your car right now, or you're listening to this podcast later on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Think about any relationship that you've ever been in. And if you're about to break up with somebody, and the other person has a sense that you're going to break up with them, well, those, you know, sometimes that person thinks they'll never move on, right? They get upset. They come back to you. They beg you, hey, I'm going to change. And, and they hope that you let them stick around. Okay, that person, I think that's exactly what Tom Brady did. I think Tom Brady was that person. Tom Brady wanted to be here. But then all the writing was on the wall. They're like, they really don't want me. So he realized that he had to break up. And over time, you realize that, okay, breaking up, actually, I can survive without this other person. They could survive without me. And you know what? I could do pretty well also. And I think that's where Tom Brady's at. I think about, like, think about your own career. Like, now, not just relationship. Think about your own career. Because that that's how I think about mine. My first job in Albany, I wanted to stay. Okay? It was market number 65. It was a good market. It was, you know... It was good for my personal life, friends, family, girlfriend. They were all there. I wanted to stay. It was the only place I'd ever known. I thought that I was valued there by the coworkers. I thought I had done a good job. I had made good connections. It was easy. It was getting easier and easier for me to do things because more and more people knew me and I had a relationship built. But And I wanted to stay so bad. They wouldn't make me full-time. And I told myself, you know what? Okay, I don't need $40,000 to do radio. If they just give me 25 and give me some benefits, man, I'll, st- I'll even take less money to stay here. I was basically begging them to stay, and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do anything for me. They basically kicked me out and said, you know what? We're, we're, we can't give you what you want. You have to leave. 
I was trying to come up with every reason to stay, and they just wouldn't let me. Within months of leaving Albany and coming to Burlington, I was like, wow, that place is a, is a disaster. And me coming here was for the best. I had it pretty good. Pretty instantly, I had it pretty good here, and I saw from afar just how bad that was that over there. Like, wow, I wanted to stay for that? Now, obviously, the Patriots weren't that bad is what I'm describing, but, you know, it took some time. It took some acceptance, but once I got there, I was like, whoa, okay, that was good. Same thing when I came here, okay? I lost my job in Burlington because of the pandemic, and I was like, wow, that sucks. I don't know what I'm going to do. How, how, how? How, how could I be the one that's on the chopping block? How, what, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? Why, why can't I stay? Ah, maybe they'll call me tomorrow. Maybe they'll invite me back. Two months later, I was at DEB, and I'm like, wow, I am so much happier here than I ever was there. Whew. And that's just the way it is. Sometimes you don't want to leave. You don't want it to be over. You fight to keep it going. And then when it ends, you go through a grieving process. But once you hit that acceptance, once you get that clarity, you realize that you can be much, much happier on the other side too. And look, the memories that Tom Brady has with the Patriots, they're, they're forever. They're, he's going the Patriots Hall of Fame. Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft, they will speak at his Hall of Fame induction. Those memories are great. But once you hit the point of clarity and once you accept it and then you move forward, Tom Brady can be like, you know what? It was pretty... Moving on, it's okay. And not only am I okay, I'm actually doing well. And not only am I doing well, I'm actually thriving. I think Tom Brady has found a happiness. I think he's found a reinvigoration of his career. I think that's good for him. But I also believe he would have stayed in New England forever if they had let him. And they just did. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury. Text line open, 585-3026. Unnamed texter on the Sean Thompson story says, Coach Grout got robbed with a quadruple exclamation point. Um, I would agree. I think that I think that Jacob Grout, and we talked about him, sent the inappropriate text message to his team with some expletives in it. I think he should not have been fired from the start. I think he should have just been given a suspension. I would have been fine with a one-game suspension, but if you really wanted to go after him, you give him a three-game, three or four-game suspension tops. And now, when you see the school fires him over a text message, but keeps Sean Thompson over a second alleged DUI, a massive mishandling there in the way the school handled it. So yeah, I would say Coach Grout did get robbed, and the fact that there was no consistency in how the school. Handle disciplinary actions. So, all right, we do it every single day. Let's get two crazy Twitter takes. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. It's time for crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. All right, crazy Twitter takes right here in the Brady Farkas show. This one's not a piece of audio. It's something that I read. It's coming out of a television station in Hartford, Connecticut. The University of Hartford, who just went to the NCAA tournament in men's basketball, they just lost to Baylor, the eventual national champion in the first round. They ran a study about athletics, and the University of Hartford is seriously considering dropping down from Division One to Division Three, even after making the NCAA tournament. And the reason why 
is the study concludes they're losing $13 million a year on athletics, and certainly COVID has taken its toll on athletic departments and on universities. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that COVID has been hard and you've been really hurt by the pandemic. Everybody has in their own way. And I can appreciate that a university wants to figure out, okay, how can we save money? But to come back with the idea that you should drop down from Division one to Division three, there's got to be a better way got to be a better way to do this. And UVM is a rival of Hartford, and if Hartford leaves, the America East gets worse and maybe has to find another team and it would cause a mess for the conference. But just, like, there's got to be a better way for this to save money than cutting all of athletics down from D1 to D3. Look, I'm not a fan of cutting sports, right? Like, an easy answer is, well, hey, basketball is good. We'll cut sport X, Y, and Z. I'm not a fan of cutting sports. I don't, I don't like that. So in some ways, I'd rather see them bring keep all the sports and bring them all down to Division Three. I'd rather see that than have them cut sports. But there's got to be a better option than any of that. Maybe they can do what UVM has done. Cut academic programs that don't get utilized there and get rid of the faculty that comes with you know, academic programs that aren't used there. Nobody ever wants to talk about academics. I understand academics are important. And I understand academics are truly the lifeblood of colleges, but if you have majors that have funding and have teachers and professors that nobody's in, you know, 10 people are in this major, like, you, do you really need it? Do you really need it? And that's what UVM has decided, and everyone's mad about it, but I'm sorry, athletics has real value to a university. And people need to recognize that, and people need to appreciate that. And I'm sorry to tell you the truth here. Outside of the Ivy League, there's no other school in the country that I think of their academics before their athletics. Hey, Brady, what do you think about Alabama? Pretty good football team. Hey, Brady, what do you think about Duke? Pretty good basketball team. Hey, what do you think about Syracuse? Pretty good lacrosse team. Like, There's no other school in the country that I think about, or no other place in the country other than the Ivy League where I think about the academics first. The athletics clearly have a value. And to just essentially gut the athletic program to save some money, there's got to be another way. I'm not saying gut the academic programs either, but there's got to be something that you can do. You can get rid of, you can trim some of the, uh, some of the academic offerings. You can... Uh, you know, when your teachers retire, your professor retire, not pay the next ones quite as much. There's got to be a phasing approach here to save some money because Hartford just made a transformative step in its athletic department by going to the NCAA tournament, and now they want to get rid of it entirely, essentially. There, there's got to be a different way. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. When we come back, Red Sox have won four straight. And Aaron Boone, who's really calling the shots for the New York Yankees? That's next right here on 585-3026. This is Freddie Coleman of ESPN, and you're listening to Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Yankees lost today to the Tampa Bay Rays. Final score was 10-5, to and... Aaron Boone and Aaron Judge in the news before the game today. So 
Aaron Judge hasn't played the last couple of days, did not play today. He's got side soreness. Remember, he's had oblique issues in the past. Marley Rivera of ESPN asked Aaron Boone, what's the deal with Judge, who, again, was not in the lineup today? So here's Aaron Boone's response to that. His judge questions because of his injury history and so on, so you can understand how we can be a little uh, confused when we don't have. Would you consider him right now injured? Um, dang, Marley. I mean, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that because okay, that's fair. I mean, and if I answer yes or no, it, it's going to be conflated a lot of different ways. So I don't have him in the lineup today. Um, I feel like he could probably play today. So I don't know. Well, I just more evaluation in 24 hours it's a good question but i'm not sure how to answer it so aaron boone says i don't know how to answer it and i think he could probably play today so what exactly is the story here does aaron boone think that aaron judge is soft and he's asked out of the lineup is brian cashman dictating from up high hey don't play him unless he's 100%. I mean, there's something to the story here. Aaron Boone tells you that I don't know if he's hurt, and I think he could play. Hey, Marley. I mean, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that. Cause, okay, that's fair. I mean, and if I answer yes or no, it, it's going to be conflated a lot of different ways. So... I don't have him in the lineup today. Um, I feel like he could probably play today. I feel like he could probably play today. There is something going on there. I don't know what it is, but there's something going on there. And it, like, admittedly, I haven't watched a whole lot of Yankees games this season. I watched a lot of opening day against the Blue Jays, watched a little bit more of game two of the season against Toronto. Haven't watched. I didn't watch any of the Yankee series against Baltimore. So I'm not really in the know on the judge thing, but... I mean, either Judge is definitely hurt and Boone is trying to protect him, or Boone thinks Judge is soft and could play, or, uh, you know, Brian Cashman is dictating from up high. I'll tell you this. Aaron Judge is hurt an awful lot, and he's out of the lineup an awful lot, and he's 28 years old. He is somebody who I would not pay huge money to if I'm the New York Yankees. And I like Aaron Judge, and Aaron Judge, when he plays, is a difference maker. Aaron Judge is good, and he's good for baseball, and he's good for New York. But that said, he's not going to get some kind of six- or seven-year deal from me. Like, He's not going to become Mr. Yankee for me until he's 40 and make $300 million. There's just no chance. Aaron Judge is under contract next year cheaply, and he'll hit free agency at 30 years old after his 30-year-old season. I'll rip up his contract after this year. I'll give him a four-year deal, essentially a three-year extension. And he can get really good money in that four years, but I, I do not want... Aaron Judge becoming another bottomless pit here on this roster. We've had it before with CC Sabathia at the end. Had it before now with with uh, John Carlos Stanton. Like if you want to reward Judge for being good for the Yankees, then I give him a four year deal, which acts as a three year extension. I keep him until thirty three or thirty four, and then I, he's not. We'll evaluate then because he's not getting the huge money for me. He is just not trustworthy to stay healthy. 
Yankees lose today again. Final score, I believe, was 10 to 5. Uh, Corey Kluber hit around there as well. Red Sox off today. Orioles and uh, Sox game two of the series. That is tomorrow. We'll have the coverage for you at 6:05 with the uh, with the pregame show. We will have 7:05 with the first pitch. Good to see the Sox now. They've won four straight, looking a little more like they should look. Eduardo Rodriguez on the mound yesterday ends up getting the win. Good for him. Garrett Whitlock, the Rule Five selection, looking pretty good for the uh, for the Sox out of the bullpen as well. And the team getting a little more offense. Franchi Cordero had an RBI yesterday, and Kike Hernandez, homer. Devers finally got a home run as well. And J.D. Martinez has a extra base hit in the first seven games of the season, which is he's in rarefied air when we talk about that. Um, so Sox and O's tomorrow, 6.05. Red Sox, look, they're playing exactly like I thought they would. They're 4-3. and three. I said I think they're right around a 500 team, and – they got to four and three a different way, but they're ultimately right where I think they would be and should be. Eighty-three and seventy-nine was my prediction. I think right now I'm pretty much right on lockstep with what this team is. And I said I thought they were going to play better at the beginning of the year with an earlier schedule. They just reversed it. I thought they'd probably beat up on Baltimore the first series and then lose to Tampa. They did the opposite. So it's good to see them playing good baseball. This idea that they're sneaky good, I do think they're sneaky good. They just also play in a very good division. Yankees, though, lost. Yankees are 3-4. and four. Again, that was a 10-5 final today. And again, Aaron Judge did not play in that one. For the Rays, they got three hits from Austin Meadows and uh, a couple of RBIs from Brandon Lau as well. That'll do it for me. Have a great weekend, everybody. Full show podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm Brady. See you on Monday on DEV.